Hope you do. You can turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you don't have one in front of you this morning, it's always good to have one on hand as we study God's Word together. You can grab a chairback Bible that should be nearby you, perhaps even in front of you. You'll find this morning's text on page 989. We're going to study together today as the first 12 verses of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians. Lord willing, following today, there will only be two studies left in these letters that have occupied our attention in recent weeks and months. Let me read this morning's text and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So here now as God speaks to you once again through His perfect Word. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, and in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son and in your word, that you would grow us in godliness, that you would speak unto us words of life, and we pray that you would do that growing and speaking power this day as we hear from you. That you would clear our minds of any distractions, that we may be attentive to this truth, that belongs to our hearts this day, that we may be able to worship you, respond with faith and repentance, that I might preach as you say I must, with truth and with with clarity, with love and compassion as a dying man unto dying people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Yesterday when we got home in the afternoon from the slate of the day's soccer games, we were met with a chirping sound in the house. It's the kind of chirp that you know immediately belongs to a smoke alarm. And if you've ever had the experience of trying to fix said chirping sound, you know it begins with trying to discover well, which smoke alarm is chirping. And it seems like, in my experience at least, is suddenly parts of the house start making echoes that they never made before. Because you'll walk into a room convinced it's this room, and then you'll say, oh, it's not that smoke alarm, so you walk over to this hallway, well, it's not that one either. And finally, at some point, we had isolated the room to Boston and Sarah's room, our two youngest children. 
But Emily had told me she just recently changed the batteries in that smoke alarm and the one outside in the hallway. But I continued thinking as I stood in the room, it's in this room, but it's not that smoke detector. It kept sounding like it was coming from the corner of the room, but there's no smoke detector over there. And time passed, and we were kind of racking our brains as to what we're to do. I disconnected the smoke detectors, and the chirping continued throughout the house. And so I thought, what is wrong? So I connected everything back together, and I kept telling Emily, it sounds like it's coming from the closet. But there's no smoke detector in the closet. Moments continued to pass by, and eventually I just shut myself into the closet to convince myself that it wasn't coming from the closet. And I told Emily, it's coming from the closet. And sure enough, I looked up and above, and there on the top shelf was an old smoke detector from a previous remodel that still had a battery in it, but that battery was running out. So we had finally discovered the source of all the alarm. And the only reason I tell you that today is because this is a passage that's meant to sound the alarm in the hearing of God's people. But it's sounding an alarm that tends to confuse many people as to where the source is or who the source is. It perhaps is one of the most obscure passages in all of Paul's writings, according to one scholar. Another says that its difficulty is nothing short of legendary. As we come to a text with the vaunted man of lawlessness, what other parts of the New Testament refer to as the Antichrist. And if you're coming today looking for some clear indication of who exactly this man is, you've come to the wrong place because I still don't know. But the point is, you're not supposed to know, I think. What you're going to see along the way this morning is not the name of the Antichrist as much as his nature. The alarm bells that will sound forth when he comes, so that when he comes, you might recognize who he is. Now kids, I wonder if you've ever read a passage of Scripture that perhaps left you confused. Maybe even those of you who are older, you've read a passage of God's Word and you felt rather daunted in understanding, oh, what is the author exactly talking about? This is, no doubt, in all of Paul's letters, the most mysterious part of his instruction, largely because it's so clear in the passage, there's so much that he's left out in the second letter that he has already told the Thessalonians when he was with them regarding this man of lawlessness, the power that restrains him. But if you know your Bible well enough, you know that whenever the Bible turns its attention to the end of all things, well, sometimes we call matters of eschatology, often it's kind of ambiguous and not terribly certain the precise details, timing, nature of things. It's only the essential simple matters that God makes clear, and you're going to see that along the way this morning, that it's the essential simple matters regarding this theme today that is really quite easy to understand if it's perhaps more difficult to identify the person in mind. So what you want to think about by way of the main theme from this passage is simply a pastoral exhortation, don't be deceived by the coming lawless one. That's what Paul's wanting to say, among other things. But don't be deceived by the coming lawless one. And that Paul's turning his attention once again to the end of all things is simple enough. If you know where we are at this point in the second letter to the church at Thessalonica, uh, you know that this was a church that was under near constant affliction and persecution. That's why Paul, as we looked at last week at the end of chapter 1, he had encouraged the Thessalonians to look up, you'll notice back in verse 7, 
to when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire. Because it's then when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of the age that he'll afflict the afflictors and he'll punish the persecutors that strike against God's people. And you'll see if you glance over to verse 1 of chapter 2, his attention is again on this second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly confusion about that second coming. He doesn't want the Thessalonians, he doesn't want you to be deceived about the coming lawless one. So there's four simple sections to the text today. Let's consider this first one in verses 1 through 3 with the pastoral aim. Look again at verse 1 and 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So students, you want to recognize again, if you've been with us in recent weeks, uh, how the event that is the Lord's return at the end of the age, it utterly dominates Paul's thinking in these letters. It pretty much occupied the last two chapters of 1 Thessalonians. It pretty much occupies the first two chapters of 2 Thessalonians. But Paul's preoccupation with the second coming is different in each letter. Because in 1 Thessalonians, he was trying to correct the Thessalonians' view that Christ's return had come too soon. In other words, friends and loved ones, family members, perhaps church members, had died before the Lord had come. And so then his resurrection was going to miss them by. And now his attention here is to these false teachers. You'll notice in verse 2. We don't know if this is how this confusion has come to the church, but perhaps it's this word of revelation. It's this prophetic utterance. He even says it may be this apostolic letter that's forged in my name, that someone is teaching that Jesus has already returned. This language there, even of quickly being shaken or alarmed, actually the language there of shaken, it's, it's most directly related to the idea of a ship, children, that's being tossed about by winds and waves there at the sea. And Paul's saying that all deception, all false teaching tends to do that. It tosses the soul about. It unsettles the heart. He doesn't want the Thessalonians to be shaken. He doesn't want the Thessalonians to be surprised. And so what does he do to answer that unsettling notion that belongs to this confusion, this deception that's crept into that young church at Thessalonica? Well, you see what he does really in verse 3 through the end is he just gives them more truth. It's as though he takes the spade of God's truth, and he's going to use it to pull up, dig underneath the weeds, the roots of this deception that struck against them. And I wonder when your mind tends to be unsettled, when your heart tends to be shaken, your soul even surprised, how you tend to respond. Is it your immediate impulse that you take the truth of God's Word to bring calm and rest, peace once again to your mind? Or do you find yourself increasingly agitated and anxious because you're divorced even from the reality of God's Word? So this pastoral aim is simple enough. You see verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. He's of course using total language there, isn't he? 
He's not saying, which frankly might be more expected, let no one deceive you in this way regarding the man of lawlessness. No, he's saying let no one deceive you in any way. How often it is, isn't it true, that deception comes in the life of a congregation, that it's bringing mental unrest, emotional turmoil, even congregational difficulty, this deception that can easily creep in in most subtle and secretive ways, but no doubt significant and destructive ways. So Paul wants to correct it. That's his pastoral aim, to save them from deception. And he reminds them in sections 2 and 3 of, of two things that must happen before the Lord returns. So Thessalonians, how are you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't actually passed you by in his return? Well, the first thing he points to is the coming apostasy. Look at the middle part of verse 3. For that day will not come. So that day is clearly the Lord's return at the end of the age in the context of these letters. It will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Students, you could read that language in verse 3 and think about the rebellion as something that comes out of almost a science fiction novel. But the word is actually the apostasy is the word that's used there. So I wonder if you know what apostasy is. I was listening to an interview earlier this week with a conservative a Christian theologian that was being interviewed regarding his you know, perspective on the state of Christianity in America and liberally sprinkled through all of his hot takes for this language of an apostate church, apostasy creeping in. And I thought to myself by about 25 minutes of this, I don't think he actually understands what apostasy means according to Scripture. Because it's a word that you probably haven't used a whole lot. It actually just simply means leaving from. Biblically understood, apostasy is just falling away from the faith that you previously professed. It can, in the ancient context, refer to something of a political crisis, which is why this language of the rebellion has caused some people to think throughout the ages it's referring to something more in the civil political sphere. But in the Greek Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, the word that's used here always refers to a religious falling away, theological rebellion, religious defection. And that Paul is using even the definite article calling it the rebellion or, or the apostasy. It makes it clear that what he has in mind here is not just some small rebellion, not just some tiny defection. He's thinking about something noticeable. He's thinking about something public, something even perhaps worldwide, as we'll see as the text continues. But the vast majority of his teaching in this passage, which has confounded people throughout the ages, is the third section that will occupy most of our time, verse 3, really through verse 9, which is the revelation of Antichrist. So he's given us his pastoral aim. He's talked about the coming apostasy. Now he wants us to know the truth about the revelation of Antichrist. For look at how verse 3 continues. A day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Uh, preparation for this sermon, pretty much anyone that came into the office this week, I greeted them with an unexpected greeting. Who's the man of lawlessness? <laughs> and after being off guard for a little bit, they said, I have no idea. And it was very much the tone of, why are you asking me that? You're the pastor. And the thing is, is nobody knows, although many, many People have said they know throughout the years. You can read through Christian history and you'll find no small number of names that have been said to be this man of lawlessness. Uh, 
at the time of Paul's day, it was Nero, and then you just race forward through history. You find no small number of Roman emperors that fit the bill according to the time. You find even this language used and attributed to people like Napoleon or Hitler and Stalin in the 20th century. Same thing was true of Henry Kissinger. Even in a famous novel, it was Nikolai Carpathier. And even in sometimes in our tradition, there's been utter certainty. The original document of our Westminster Confession of Faith said, none other than the Pope is the Antichrist and the man of sin. Quote, He is that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is God. And I'm not going to tell you with any certainty that we can identify any sort of figure. It's going to, again, tell you not his name but his nature along the way. There's six things that you need to notice, verse 4 through 9, about this man. Even though Paul doesn't use the language of Antichrist, is nonetheless, that's who he's talking about, as we'll see in just a moment. And perhaps it's even encouraging to you to recognize that oftentimes when it comes to matters of the end, there is actually a profoundly pastoral reason why God doesn't tell you the details we so often want to know. Because think about it in this way. If this verse was so black and white and said that the man of lawlessness is so-and-so that will live at such-and-such time, everyone that lived outside of such-and-such time would never be watching, would never be waiting, would never be ready, would never be alert. In the same way that we don't know when the Son of Man is going to return, and our confession says that's one of the greatest helps towards godliness and readiness, because he could come back at any moment. In the same way, we don't know exactly his name, but we do know much about his nature. First of all, he's the lawless one. You see that again in verse 3. The man of lawlessness is his title. He is the antinomian. First John tells us that lawlessness is sin. That's why a lot of the Christian tradition has referred to this man as the man of sin. He opposes all of God's law. He has no interest in obedience. His, his very public nature is one of pronounced disobedience and flouting of God's truth. Oh, perhaps oversimplifying the realities. If you took God's moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, this is a man who's going to disregard all of it in a public, flagrant sense. He's number two. Not just the lawless one, but the doomed one. You see, as verse 3 ends, he's the son of destruction. Kids, that doesn't mean that he's going to destroy things, which no doubt he'll wreak enough havoc. It's actually language that more says he's going to be destroyed. That you can take comfort and you can have even encouragement this morning that this mighty figure that's going to rise at the end of the age, his, his outcome is not victory, but it's defeat. He's the doomed one. Thirdly, I want you to see that he considers himself the exalted one. Verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So that he considers himself the exalted one, worthy of worship, that's simple enough according to the passage. But perhaps is more confusing about where he sets himself up to be exalted and worshipped above all other religious power. You see, again, verse 4 at the end says it's taking his seat in the temple of God. Many people, particularly in America in the last 150 years, have understood this to be taking his seat in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem at the end of the age. For my own mind, I think the New Testament is quite clear, and even the entirety of Scripture is quite clear, that there's no expectation that the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem at the end of the age. It was destroyed in A.D. 70, never to return again. The New Testament instead picks up on this temple language over 
and over and over. And it's Paul, the one that teaches it most often, that says the church of God is none other than the temple of God, that we're being built up, Christ's church, into a dwelling place for God. That's temple language. We're being built up into a temple for God by His Son and, and through His Spirit. So at least I would take the end of verse 4 to speak about something of a worldwide church leader that sets himself up as the object of worship, the one to whom all honor and majesty is due, not God Himself. So he's the lawless one, the doomed one. He considers himself the exalted one. If you look at verse 6 and 7, he's also the restrained one. Paul says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. I think this is a good place for us to be able to say this is why we think of the man of lawlessness is none other than the Antichrist. Language you read even at the beginning of the service. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Telling us that the end is near. That we're in the last hour. That many Antichrists have come. And Antichrist will come. That there is one figure that will come. But there's the spirit of Antichrist there. In the same way, it's telling us that the mystery of lawlessness is already present. But the man of lawlessness is yet to be revealed. Part of the difficulty, even in verse 6 and 7, verse 6 speaks about this restraining power more as a thing, and verse 7 more as a person. So what's restraining the man of lawlessness until his appointed day? Well, some people have posited that it's the Roman Empire at this time. It's just civil government that through its restraining power, its punishment of evil is going to restrain the lawless one. Other people have said it's none other than the preaching of the gospel, which Revelation 20 says now goes out to all peoples and all nations. It's got restraining power, subduing power as it's converting through the work of the Spirit, people from every tribe, tongue, and language. Or perhaps even from similar language like Revelation chapter 20, is this angelic being of God that's restraining him until the very end. It, of course, could just be the simple providential power of God that's restraining him until it's time for him to be let loose. Whatever the restraining power precisely is, we don't know, but it's clear that he, of course, is not sovereign. He cannot unbind himself. However, God is restraining him. God is proving himself, even in this moment, to be sovereign even over his great enemies. He's not just, fourthly, the restrained one. You'll see verse 8. He's also, fifthly, the revealed one. And then the lawless one will be revealed. He'll be let loose. Significantly, this language of revealed is the precise language used about Jesus in the previous chapter. And the reason that's significant is because if you were with us over the last year as we walked our way in our evening service through Revelation, the final book of God's Word, from start to finish, we mentioned, if you were with us many times, how a Satan loves to counterfeit the triune God. He offers this sort of parody and, and satire of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always copycatting and counterfeiting the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, it seems as though the one that he sends will be sent in a manifest public way, just like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But sixthly and finally, you see, he will become the nothing one. Because verse 8 says, the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I want you to take great encouragement even from that sixth and final truth. 
Because you see the ease with which the Lord Jesus Christ dispatches someone that the world will consider impossibly powerful. So great in his might, so great in his cunning and deception. But just like an adult can stand over a birthday cake and blow out a candle. So Jesus shows up and just blows away this man of lawlessness. But it's not just an encouraging thing to know this power of Christ, is it? It should be a terrifying thing for all those who stand against Jesus Christ. Notice how simply, how fully, how horrifyingly his wrath falls upon those that stand against him. So this is the revelation of Antichrist. Someone sent at the end of the age to lead and deceive many astray, to bring about the great apostasy. I want you to see the fourth section in verse 9 through 10, the satanic activity. Satanic activity. At this time, as best we can tell, when Paul would have written this letter in and around AD 51. The Roman emperor at the time was a man named Claudius. And he was well known as a usurper to the throne. Because when he was born, he was a third degree heir to the imperial throne. And it was in AD 41 that the Praetorian Guard there in Rome assassinated the emperor at the time, a man named Gaius Caesar, or more popularly is known as Caligula. And then the Roman army took Claudius and set him up as emperor, this usurper backed by a shadow power. And in the same way, you see, this man of lawlessness is nothing other than a usurper of God's glory, God's throne, God's honor. He too has this shadow power. Notice verse 9, a shadow power behind him coming of the lawless one, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So you see, he's backed by none other than Satan's energy is what that word activity means. Satan's power working through him that he might lead many, surely countless astray by false signs and wonders. You know, students, as you continue to grow older, I would want to encourage you to Always remember that throughout history, so many people are led astray by signs and wonders. Think of these miraculous feats of supposed spiritual power as a place in which you can find true a trust. But of course, that's not the place to put your faith because they can lead many astray as they will do at the end of the age. But his power, Satan's activity, working through the man of lawlessness, is not just for false signs and wonders. You see, it's also with all wicked deception in verse 10 for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Unless we think that Satan is altogether too powerful in his shadow-like work behind the man of lawlessness knows that God is working at the exact same time, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, and in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, if you stop and stare at verse 11 in particular long enough, you might ask questions like, well, doesn't that make God the author of iniquity in many ways, that he's preventing people from coming to faith? He's deluding their minds so that he may condemn them. Well, as one commentator says, the whole process in verse 11 and 12 is, is grimly logical. 
quote, it tells us that the downward slippery path begins, and notice this is the logic spiritually of the passage, a love for evil, and then leads successively to a rejection of the truth, the deception of the devil, a judicial hardening by God, and final condemnation. What's best understood here is how even it worked out in the heart of Pharaoh, did it not in the Old Testament book of Exodus. That he hardened his heart against God and that divine revelation that was made so manifest before him. And God decided, I'm going to harden your heart further. For you are going to be an object of my destruction. And God decided you are past the point of no return. That you are just going to continue in the hardening of your heart to the place of final condemnation. So just as Satan is working, the Lord is sovereignly working at the same time. And I don't know if you're in here today and you would say that you have been deceived and deluded in this way. It's certainly possible that you have been. I don't know if your heart is hardened against the Lord in this way. I don't know if you're on the road to condemnation. Of course, I do know this. The Bible says that there is only but one way to flee from the coming wrath. And that's to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That if you come to him, you'll flee that wrath to come. That if you look to him, you'll no longer be on that pathway to condemnation. You'll be on the only road that leads to rescue. So this is what's going to happen, Paul says, at the end of the age, that you might not be unsettled by deceptive schemes and false teachings telling you that the arrival of Christ has already come. There must be a coming apostasy. There must be the revelation of Antichrist fueled by pronounced satanic activity. But it's activity, is it not, that it's not outside God's sovereignty. I have a friend that has for a number of years now led a very large ministry that goes around the world to all kinds of countries and villages and in cities training pastors that have no access to theological education. And whenever he's visiting churches trying to communicate the mission of, of his ministry, he tends to preach a similar sermon in such cases that uh, tends to introduce itself with something like, you need to always remember that most of the New Testament was written because of error. And he doesn't, of course, mean that there's any error in the New Testament. What he's wanting to tell us is that most of the New Testament, the apostles and New Testament writers, wrote what they wrote to combat the error that was already coming into the churches in the first century. It's why even I was with this brother, and we were in India one time, and we were preaching, I was with another brother, and he had just preached. and We're walking through this service that was in a local dialect and language. And this brother that I was with from Canada had said to the guy leading the trip, he said, I would, I would so love to be able to know what, what they're saying when they're, when they're preaching in Telugu, which was the a local language. And our liaison said, you probably wouldn't want to hear it. There's so much error in it, you'd be shocked. But these brothers are sincere. They just don't know better. And Paul comes along the way to this young church at Thessalonica that had clearly been somehow taught falsehood and is saying, no, don't be deceived. Here's what must happen before that happens. And as we begin to close, I want to answer a question here at the end in two ways. How do we fight against deception? 
Because I do want you to know that Satan continues his ordinary tactic and scheme of warring against Christ's church to deceive him, to deceive you, to deceive us. And if he's doing that, still today, how do we fight against him? Well, what's interesting, of course, in the passage that is before us, we kind of stop short of verse 13 through 17, which is Paul's final implications from even this section on the man of lawlessness. But we're going to leave that off for next week. I do think, however, our text gives us two answers to that question of how we fight against deception. Number one, fight against deception by remembering God's truth. Remembering God's truth. Look again at verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? But clearly, Paul had explained it all to them already, perhaps in something like a Sunday school Meeting, perhaps even in a sermon. It's just ordinary house-to-house teaching. I told this to you already. Don't you remember that? Are there times in life when the cares and concerns rise to such a degree that they begin to shake, they begin to stir your heart, that you forget what you've been told for so many years? Yes, I still believe it, but I've actually kind of forgotten it along the way. Such is the nature of what seems to be happening there at the church at Thessalonica, the cares and concerns of the world, the deception and false teaching infiltrating their midst had unsettled them to such a degree that they had forgotten the plain truth of what the Apostle Paul had told them. And I wonder if you've ever been in a place where you too have found an unsettling reality in your life through deception. And maybe it's just because you've forgotten what you were supposed to remember. And kids, I want you to know that when it comes to remembering God's truth, Now, this will take us to our second and final answer. It's not enough just for you to tolerate God's truth. To have grown up in the church and say, yes, I know that's true. No, you must love God's truth. It's not enough to just tolerate it. You must treasure God's truth, which is why you fight against deception not just by remembering God's truth, but by rejoicing, secondly, in Christ's righteousness. Because in verse 11 and 12, it tells us that the true root of what's going on there at the end of the age, which no doubt belongs to our age and any age, the great battle is not simply over deception, but over desire. Why don't they believe and so be saved? Why do they continue in their perishing path? Look at the end of verse 10. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Or more literally, it's they refuse to welcome a love for the truth and so be saved. And what's underneath that is desire too. Look at the end of verse 12. It's not just merely a lack of mental assent to true scriptural teaching. You see the end of verse 12. They did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Thus, when the great apostasy comes, when the man of unrighteousness, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the way in which God's people continually are meant to fight against him is by having a pleasure that's greater, a superior delight, a love that is increased, which of course is a love for righteousness, which is a love none other for Jesus Christ himself, he who has become to us wisdom, knowledge, sanctification and righteousness from God, how will you stand firm in this day against deception? How will you stand firm in your time against false teaching? Well, you must remember God's truth. You must rejoice in Christ's righteousness. Then you'll stand always ready for the end when it arrives. 
When Satan schemes and wars against God's people, you'll stand firm as Paul exhorts the congregation at the end of this chapter. Firm in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your wisdom to us. We pray that you would help us to grow in it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We can grab your hymnals as we respond to God's word. We want to stand and sing together.